From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll learn about the DNR's plan for wolf management in the state and how people are reacting to it. Nobody, especially in this area, doesn't want to see the wolves on the landscape. That isn't the question. What we want to do is see the wolves managed. Then we'll learn about the House of History, a project dedicated to sharing Black LGBTQ plus history. My goal is to get the word out that we're here. And a lot of the sacrifices that were made by some of the people who are no longer here, their legacy can live on. Plus, Bubbler Talk looks into the legend of a haunted radio in a West Dallas bar. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. Yesterday was a big day for wildlife management in Wisconsin. After two years of researching, deliberating, drafting, and modifying, the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources presented its proposed plan for wolf management to the Natural Resources Board. Ahead of their vote, the board heard comments from a number of people, some in support of the plan, others opposing, and some just hoping to see some tweaks made. You'll hear now from a few of the people who shared their thoughts. Bonjour, good morning, everyone. My name is Jason Schlender, and I'm the Executive Administrator for the Great Lakes Indian Fish and Wildlife Commission. I'm here today on behalf of Glyphwick and the Voight Intertribal Task Force. These comments are made from an intertribal perspective and do not preclude any of Glyphwick's member tribes' comments on the proposed plan and rule in their own sovereign capacity. Glyphwick's member tribes have always been staunch advocates for Mayangan, for protection, and our tribes maintain unequivocal opposition to the recreational hunting of Mayangan. Mayangan is highly revered by the Ojibwe people as a relative who possesses equal, if not superior, capacity to human beings in many respects. The Ojibwe creation story says that Mayangan walked with our great uncle, and the creator gave the, the two the task to name all aspects of creation. The two then parted ways, but the creator explained that the Anishinaabe and Mayangan would always be connected as brothers. While Glyphwick's member tribes stand firm in their opposition to any recreational hunting of Mayangan, the task force recognizes the state statutes, court rulings, and the painful memory of past wolf hunting seasons require a new wolf management plan and, and rule to be promulgated. On behalf of the task force, we have already submitted written comments on both the plan and the rule in which we requested certain changes. Some of those requests were adopted in the DNR's most recent drafts, and we appreciate those edits. There are, however, three specific aspects of the plan and rule where we find it necessary to reiterate our comments. The task force asks that the recommended limit for subzone 1B noted on page 108 of the plan be changed to two. The average pack size according to data in the plan is four wolves. Having the limit for this subzone be equal to the average pack size could allow for an entire pack to be wiped out. In the interest of protecting wolves and preserving reservation packs, we ask that the limit be lowered to two. However, if the limit cannot be lowered, we ask that the plan recommend that if two wolves were, are taken from the same subzone area that is around a single reservation, then that part of the subzone be closed to further harvest. 
Such a measure would be would provide greater insurance that a reservation pack would not be exterminated. The task force once again asserts its recommendation that there be two separate committees to advise wolf stewardship. A science committee made up of technical experts from tribal and state agencies and a stakeholder committee. While we ask the board to consider these requests, Glyphwick and the task force support the plan and rule. Miigwech for the opportunity to present this testimony to you all today. I'm Amy Mueller. I'm from Western Waukesha County. I live in the town of Ottawa. I stand before you today as an outdoor enthusiast, a Wisconsin master naturalist, and a mom. And I think it's important to point out on the conversation we've had so far this morning that based on the DNR's public opinion survey conducted just last year, the majority of Wisconsin citizens do value wolves on the landscape. And that was conducted with more than half of those respondents living in wolf territory. With that, if you don't ask, the answer is always no, as my daughter would tell you. So I have three things that I really want to highlight. And I came here in person to look you in the eye and ask so that if it doesn't happen, I can still sleep at night. First page, 108. And we heard from Jason at Glyphwick ask about changing the subzone 1B quota to only two wolves. And that is to preserve the wolf families that live in those areas. The next page number is 101. And I call for the creation of a science-based committee that would be made up of technical experts, both tribal and state agencies to advise on wolf stewardship. And this would be in addition to the stakeholder committee. I appreciate and understand the need for stakeholder committees, but I have to acknowledge that everybody comes there with an agenda. A science-based committee would allow us and this board to hear directly from the professionals and the experts that do this for a living. And my last page number, and this is a super important one, is page 115. And I strongly support the adaptive management part of this plan. In holding to that commitment, I specifically ask that table 18 on page 115 be removed. If this plan is truly adaptive, no table is necessary. With this table being included, our new plan is perpetuating an old and quite frankly, unhealthy obsession on the statewide wolf population estimate. I'll leave you with this. There's a fun fact that the latest DNR wolf population estimate shared shows a slight statewide increase. And yet our depredations are at a 15 year low. That's only 18 farms that have been impacted with depredations in a calendar year. I think we should focus more on that, the number of conflicts and not the statewide population. My name is Chris Vaughn and I'm the Wisconsin State Director for Hunter Nation. Hunter Nation is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to be the united voice of the American hunter and protect our lifestyle, heritage and the traditional American values of God, family and country. On behalf of our Wisconsin members, and hunters in the state, I'd like to thank the Natural Resource Board for the opportunity to address this critical issue. Hunter Nation is a strong supporter of the North American model of wildlife conservation. We recognize that all wildlife is a public resource and that to manage wildlife is a shared resource fairly, objectively, and knowledgeably, decisions must be based on sound science. We acknowledge wolves are an important part of our state's natural and cultural heritage, and our organization is proud of the incredible conservation success of the Wolf Recovery Plan. We also recognize the importance of other wildlife species in Wisconsin, like the white-tailed deer. We understand the importance of managing our state's wildlife in conjunction with public safety, 
livestock, and other domesticated animals such as dogs. Hunter Nation understands the management of the wolf population is crucial for the balance of all of our state's wildlife. We support the department's efforts to implement a plan to maintain a healthy and sustainable wolf population. Hunter Nation opposes the current wolf management plan. Contrary to prior plans, the current plan does lack a defined number of wolves that the department would consider to be a wolf population that is healthy and ecologically functional in the state. Additionally, the plan does not set a quota for the number of wolves that would be harvested immediately to achieve the goals of the state's overall conservation plan once hunting is opened. We encourage the department to review its own 1999 plan that clearly established the department's goal for the total wolf population in the state. The plan stated, uh, state population management goal of a late winter count of 350 outside of Native American reservations. According to the department's gray wolf uh, monitoring report of April 15th of 2021 through April 14th of 2022, the total number of wolves in Wisconsin was between 812 and 1,193. Other estimates put the total wolf population at more than 1,500 animals. Regardless of the exact account, the current number of wolves in Wisconsin far exceeds the population goal of 350 as established in 1999. While this is a social hot button topic as evidenced by the comments, we recommend the department strongly consider the real life experiences of those that live in wolf country. The resident stakeholders and their elected officials overwhelmingly support a defined population goal. Many of the public comments supporting the removal of a numeric population goal are advocacy groups and citizens living outside of the, of wolf, the main wolf habitat. Regardless of the emotions on both sides, the department should always adhere to the tenets of the North American model of wildlife conservation and base its decisions on sound science and not emotion. In closing, Hunter Nation urges the department to confirm, as stated in the original plan and referenced the 1999 plan, a population goal of 350 wolves. Based on that goal, even using the lowest possible total wolf count, Wisconsin has a surplus of 462 wolves in the state. Therefore, we recommend a harvest quota of four to 450 wolves once a federal delisting occurs. Additionally, we urge the department to avoid any regulation that is inconsistent with existing regulations that adversely impacts personal property rights in the state of Wisconsin. Our next appearance is on Zoom, uh, Patrick Quaintance, Bayfield. I'm gonna just share some experience that I've had with wolves living in wolf country for the last 30 years and um, my experience being a conservation warden and um, what's happened with the wolf population um, in my area. Um, it, it's been, um, I got a farm to the north of me that's received a lot of depredation. I got a farm to the south of me that's received a lot of depredation. And uh, I found calf uh, parts from the remains of uh, those calves on my property. I own 200 acres. Uh, in between these two farms, and since the wolf population has like has exploded in these areas, we probably got I would assume about twelve to thirteen hundred wolves just north north of uh, Highway Two and Deer Management Three. Uh, the deer population has crashed. We don't have any to speak up of deer. And uh, three years ago, when the deer population crashed, we all of a sudden got a rash of depredations from a horse ranch to the west of me and to a farm to the north of me and to a farm to the south of me. So with that said, I don't know what these animals are gonna feed on in the future here. So it's become a problem here. You know, I, I don't feel safe with walking my dogs or even turning a dog loose on my property. It, it's just come to the point of, you know, I don't, 
you know, I worked and protected these wolves for many years. And my aspect was, is we, nobody, especially in this area, doesn't want to see the wolves on the landscape. That isn't the question. What we want to do is see the wolves managed and we want them to see them managed in a proper way. So, you know, let's get the it in perspective and reality. People are having problems with these wolves. Uh, good morning, members of the Natural Resources Board. I'm Fred Clark. I'm the Executive Director of Wisconsin's Green Fire. Uh, we're a statewide organization committed to science and natural resources conservation. I'm speaking today on behalf of Green Fire and our, and our members uh, who include a number of dedicated career wildlife biologists, um, including some who participated in the creation of the 1999 Wolf Management Plan, um, including members who uh, contributed as stakeholder advisors to the current draft wolf management plan that you're considering today, um, and who have spent their careers on wolf conservation and management in this state and in this region. In support of the plan, I'll just make a couple of comments. Uh, we believe the focus on ecological benefits of wolves while balancing a recovered population um, and the need to reduce and manage potential conflicts and cultural concerns with respect for our tribal neighbors respect for the needs and interests and legitimate concerns of people in wolf range. We believe this plan strikes an appropriate balance and creates an adaptive management framework that's flexible and, and will allow the right tools in the right places going forward. Uh, we believe the new configuration of zones addresses a, a significant problem that was reflected in the 2021 harvest in which most of the hunting activity occurred in core wolf habitats range that had little to no impact on, on wildlife um, and wolf livestock conflicts, which is the major concern that many people have around this issue. Um, to point to that, if you look at depredation data in the five years prior to the 2021 harvest, depredation numbers of livestock averaged around 26, 27, 28 per year. Uh, the year after the 2021 wolf harvest, that number jumped to the second highest number that's ever been recorded since wolves have come back to this state. We believe the 350 goal, well, you'll hear a lot about it today, uh, whether it was a cap or whether it was a management goal or whether it was a ceiling, it's an irrelevant conversation. We have 24 years of new information, new data, new experience. That's what's in front of you all today. That was five people sharing their thoughts about the DNR's proposed wolf management plan as it went before the Natural Resources Board for a vote. You can find more information about yesterday's hearing and vote at wuwm.com. Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Just search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcast to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. In about 15 minutes, we'll learn about the brain science behind free throw shooting as the buck season gets underway. But first, learn about the House of History, a project dedicated to sharing local Black LGBTQ history. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. October is LGBTQ History Month, and we can't celebrate and learn from people and events of the past if they're not documented and shared. Janice Toy has long been a part of Milwaukee's LGBTQ history. 
She's one of Milwaukee's most legendary entertainers and one of the founding members of SHEBA, or Sisters Helping Each Other Battle Adversity, a support group for black women of trans experience. Toy is on a mission to make sure Milwaukee's black LGBTQ history is preserved and shared through the House of History. The House of History is a project dedicated to collecting and sharing local black LGBTQ history through interviews as well as uncovering and sharing photographs, as well as other artifacts that tell the stories of black LGBTQ people here in Milwaukee. To share more about it, Toy joins me to explain how she wanted to go from being a part of local black LGBTQ history to preserving it. Well, with the House of History, you know, this gives me the opportunity to, I guess, document a lot of the girls who have passed, you know, I guess to document, you know, their life legacy, you know, because sometimes when people die, you know, we forget. And a lot of the younger transgender community, they don't know the struggles that a lot of the girls had to go through before them. You know, now there's a lot of programs, you know, that's targeted to kind of help transgender. But when I first came out, a lot of those programs weren't available, you know, so they don't know the struggles and the hard work that the older girls had to put in, you know, and a lot of the newer girls, you know, that's just coming out and don't even know that it was a girl who, um, you know, who the struggles that she went to to get, you know, it passed for us to get our name changed and, you know, to just to be able to live, you know, this lifestyle that people take, you know, advantage of, you know, so. Can you share how it was born? I understand you connected with Bryce Smith of the LGBTQ Milwaukee, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you share how you both came together to bring this idea about? Well, he was interviewing just some Sheba, you know, members. And it was just like a instant connection me and him had, you know, and then he just, you know, just introduced me to other different, you know, programs and stuff that he had and, you know, ideas that, you know, he wanted to, you know, bring about. And I just jumped aboard and it was like an instant connection. Yeah, he was originally in touch with you to learn more about Sheba, which is Sisters Helping Each Other Battling Adversity, and talking about the programs that exist today. Uh, you're one of the founding members of Sheba. I'd love to learn more about why and how you started this organization and, and what it looked like in its early days compared to now. Well, Sheba, it was a group because, I mean, I was just one of the first members that joined. But, I mean, it started off with Sisters Helping Each Other Battle A. But then a lot of girls kind of were, I guess they didn't like the title, you know, of AIDS being associated, you know, with being, you know, transgender or whatever. Because I guess a lot of people got a misunderstanding that everybody that was in the group or in order to be a part of the group, you had to be, you know, HIV positive, which wasn't the case. And so, you know, they wanted to take away that that negative title so then it got changed to you know adversity or whatever but you know we involve you know now it's kind of like you know they help with um a lot of employment um they do um clothing drives um they do more outings they offer um, needle exchange they offer programs to help girls get um hormones you know because i guess in the earlier days you know a lot of those programs weren't available you know, to us as transgender, you know, a lot of, you know, people, if you didn't have insurance or, um, 
you just didn't have the money. You know, you were just buying it, you know, from off the street, you know, whatever. You know, so it's kind of like we you know, offer a lot of different things to help girls, you know, to stay on the right path, you know, and, um, because a lot of times, you know, people think that black trans women or trans, you know, people in general, you know, the only thing that we were eligible for was either sex work or doing drag shows. You know, we couldn't have like a a regular job. We couldn't, you know, have the things that a normal person in society, you know, they felt like, you know, we weren't, you know, entitled to those things, you know, and now Sheba is, you know, we promote jobs and, and getting people, you know, into, you know, careers and different things like that. If you're comfortable, would you mind sharing about your own journey coming out and your relationship with your mother and how she influenced your outlook and activism and helping other people in the roles you play yourself? I had a very strong, you know, relationship with my mother. You know, my mother, unfortunately, you know, I lost her a few years ago due to COVID. But, you know, she was a very strong person in my life. I mean, like I said, we were very, very close. You know, she didn't look at me, you know, differently or treated me any differently. You know, she always gave me the um, the motivation that I needed and pushed me, you know, to want different things in my life. And she always made me believe that I could do anything regardless of my sexuality or because I chose to be trans. You know, she always, you know, told me that, you know, I can always come to her and I could talk to her about anything. You know, I didn't have to feel embarrassed or, you know, and she opened her, you know, her home to any of, you know, all of my friends. Like if people, you know, didn't have anything to eat, they were able to come to her house and sit down and get a meal. You know, if they needed a place to stay, she opened up her house to them. You know, my mother was very loving, you know, and very supportive, you know, of my lifestyle. And I guess because of that, I was able to give back. And I guess I just felt, you know, like there was always something I wanted to do to help others. Because I had was fortunate enough to have someone in my life, you know, because a lot of times, you know, family members, they turn their back on you once they find out, you know, that you're trans or you're even living into a gay lifestyle. You know, they turn their back on you. And I had a strong support system. You know, my family was very supportive. And so I just wanted other girls to share in that, that, you know, they too could, you know, have someone in their corner to pick them up. You know, I wanted them to feel that family support, you know, that I felt coming up. What did you discover about yourself when you took on the role of interviewing people and these members of the Black LGBTQ community? Everyone has a story to tell. And sometimes, you know, because we had like a general questions, you know, that we kind of like asked everyone, but everyone had like a different answer. And some things you didn't even know about, I didn't even know about, you know, some of the individuals. And I've been knowing some of them for years, you know, but when you start getting into asking certain questions, you just got, you know, all these different answers. And then it was opening up, you know, because, you know, it's like a, it was more like a, a friendship type of thing. So they were comfortable with sharing these stories, something that, you know, they probably wouldn't have told anyone else, but because they felt comfortable with our friendship, you know, they opened up and they didn't have a problem with, you know, sharing these different things and 
some of these stories I was even blown away by. And along with the people you talk to, the sense of place and community also plays a big role for Milwaukee's queer community. And most people are familiar with Walker's Point being the area with most of the city's gay bars. But can you share the history of the gay bars on Milwaukee's north side and the role that they played in your life? A lot of the bars that I guess I went to on the north side um, when I first came out are no longer here. But when they were open, you know, it just gave me uh, a place of being able to be myself. I didn't have to hide who I was. I didn't have to pretend, you know, and put on a, a fake smile. You know, I could let my hair down. You know, I could just be myself. And it was a, a, a loving, you know, situation because it was like you were around like-minded people, you know, that didn't judge you or didn't look down on you because of something that you had on or because, you know, you were different. You know, it was just, I guess, just a, a loving, you know, situation, you know, to be a, around people, you know, that didn't judge you, you know, and you were able to have a good time. Throughout your memories or the interviews you've been conducting, can you share with us uh, a person that you interviewed whose stories are not just impactful, but a story that you think is is worth sharing right now before the website launches? Well, I guess the one story that kind of touched me a little more was the one with um, Ronnie Grace. You know, I've been knowing him for years, and he's been one of the facilitators at Diverse Resilient with the Sheba. You know, I guess, you know, hearing his struggle and, you know, a lot of the things that, you know, he went through in other states that he lived in and things, you know, with health issues and, you know, just a lot of things across the board that he was dealing with. It was just very heartwarming, you know, to know that throughout of everything that he went through, you know, he's still here and he made, you know, different sacrifices and a lot of things that he did, you know, help the community. And a lot of the programs that he started and, you know, was a part of are successful, you know, because of him. And so, you know, I was just glad that I was able to, you know, learn a lot of, you know, different things. I was just touched by, you know, his interview. And with you yourself learning new things with people you've known for years, collecting their histories, how do you hope the House of History Project will connect with and impact Black LGBTQ plus Milwaukeeans especially? Well, you know, I guess my goal is to get the word out, you know, that we're here. And a lot of the, the sacrifices that were made by some of the people who are no longer here, their legacy can live on, you know, because everyone in our family you know, has someone in the LGBT community, whether they want to admit it or not, you know, it's someone in somebody's family, you know, whether they're in the closet or they're not. And, you know, their stories, you know, need to be told. This was a way that, you know, it was it was a life-changing experience, you know, and it was a way to, to make history and, you know, to keep history, you know, going. And I think that this website, you know, would give that. I guess that opportunity, you know, to, to get that word out and get that connection, you know, that we need. Janice Toy is the mother of the House of History, a project dedicated to collecting and sharing local Black LGBTQ plus history. 
You can find some of the stories collected through the LGBT Milwaukee app, and you can also see the first House of History video at wuwm.com. The Bucks season kicks off tonight at Pfizer Forum. So today we're going to look at a little science and psychology behind the game. The free throw is the only time in a basketball game where a player can make a basket without any defensive pressure. Yet many players struggle to consistently make the uncontested 15-foot shot. Despite the rituals that may come before it, the fate of a free throw is set the second the basketball leaves the player's fingertips. And what may seem like a relatively simple element of the game is actually one of the most complex moments a player takes part in, scientifically at least. To find out more about the science behind a successful free throw, I'm joined by William Cullinan, Marquette's Dean of the College of Health and Sciences. He begins by explaining the science behind the pre-free throw ritual. Anyone who's ever been coached to play basketball is taught to keep that consistent. Whatever that ritual is, whether it's bouncing the ball three times, five times, if you're Giannis Attentacumbo, perhaps 10 times <laughs> or something, something wild. But um, the idea is that you're kind of like accessing a type of uh, procedural memory that's going to allow you to be more consistent as a shooter. In a sense, it's a type of priming. So what part of the brain is most involved in learning how to shoot free throws in that priming that you're talking about? Well, it's surprisingly large. So we know that the motor parts of the brain are the brain regions that are responsible for producing motion are, are most involved. But as it turns out, um, there's quite an extensive part of the brain that's involved in any kind of complex motor act like shooting a basketball. and that might come as somewhat of a surprise to folks at first because you typically think of these functions as relatively segregated. But as it turns out for a complex motor function like shooting a free throw, there's a fantastic complexity involved. And in fact, the parts of the brain that are thought to control motor function on the cortical surface are insufficient to be able to do that by themselves. That is such a wide array of muscles acting to move joints in a very specific sequence is uh, really complicated. And there just isn't enough information processing capacity in our motor cortex alone to be able to pull that off accurately. And so there are a series of parallel channels that the brain uses and accesses, if you will, to program complex motor actions like a free throw. So this programming of complex actions, is that uh, another term for muscle memory, the, how we condition ourselves? Yeah, in a sense. So in a very strict sense, there's no such thing as muscle memory because muscles don't remember. <laughs> they do have receptors that report to the nervous system and brain, and therefore uh, we're really talking about the same thing. But it is that feeling that you know, you're know you in that groove, you're in that form that you've accessed before. Uh, and that type of procedural memory is something that we've all experienced if we've ever ridden a bike or, or learned any complex motor action with any kind of proficiency. But 
for me, the, the critical feature, and there are so many things that have been written about free throw shooting, that is how to improve accuracy with free throw shooting. And I've been somewhat of a student of the game and of that aspect of it for a long time. And you know, some of the, the key features of, of shooting include the velocity of the stroke, if you will, uh, the alignment of it, People talk about putting a little bit of backspin on the shot so that if it um, is off a little bit, it has a good chance of, of rolling in. Uh, and then of course, perhaps most importantly is the release angle. That is the angle uh, above the body that the ball actually leaves the hand or wrist, which is thought optimally to be somewhere between say 45 and 55 degrees. And that produces the correct arc so that it's a successful shot. So all of these things are true, uh, but my thesis is a little bit different. And it's this, it's that the stroke or the shot needs to be of an optimal length in terms of the motor program involved in order to be most effective. That is either too short or too long, uh, it predicts uh, inaccuracy. So all of these kind of complex factors are kind of accumulating in the launch conditions of the shot, right? The instant that ball leaves the player's fingertips, but so much has gone into what is going to take the ball or happen to the ball before that, right? Yes, and in fact, in neurological terms, what's happened is almost miraculous because the specificity of the neural activity that has to occur within these parallel channels running from the cortex uh, through the brain and then back to the motor cortex are enormously complex. And when I talk about the length or optimal length of the motor program, I'm talking about fully engaging that system. That is not under engaging it and also not having a motor program so long as to allow the introduction of error. And that's a key. Free throws are the one time a basketball player is not dealing with any defensive pressure, which is a different environment compared to the majority of their playtime on the court. So to people who perhaps haven't played or aren't as experienced, they may think, oh, what's so hard about standing without any players trying to get in your way and make a basket, right? But um, this is a vastly different condition compared to what they're used to playing in. So how does stress and anxiety impact shooting success? Yeah, they do a lot. Uh, it's one thing to be standing in your driveway uh, shooting repetitively, and it's another thing to be standing in front of uh, uh, 17,000 screaming maniacs in the Fiserv Forum with the game on the line. And so those types of, uh, of stressful situations certainly have an impact on accuracy. Uh, and so, uh, again, stress is something that uh, can lead to uh, the introduction of error into a motor program. So there's a whole psychology behind that aspect of the free throw. That is to put oneself in a zone or perhaps use mental imaging to uh, conjure up a less stressful situation or something more, more comfortable. And those can always be important factors in accuracy. Uh, but you're right, stress uh, and anxiety are certainly factors in free throw shooting. In a sense, there's nothing very free about that. So do you think the one consistent thing to get a player into that mindset, no matter what the environment is, is to have that base of practice, 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 and establish your routine. Is that really what's going to make you most successful is all the work that's done away from the moment where it counts most? That's certainly a big part of it. But I think another part of it is to practice under differential conditions. So you want to 
practice when you're exhausted. You want to practice when you're fresh. You want to practice somewhere in between, uh, because those are the conditions under which you'd be shooting them in a game. And if you were only to practice under ideal conditions, say at the start of your workout, again, predicts that you're not going to be ready for that situation late in the game where you're kind of tripping over your tongue as it is, uh, and now have the added uh, stress of winning or losing the game. So as I'm sure many local fans have noticed, Giannis has been working on his free throw game a lot over the course of the past couple seasons here. What is happening in the brain when we do see this improvement? Right. So collectively, we put the term in this phenomenon as something we call neuroplasticity. And so it can take a lot of forms. Uh, in one sense, between the connections of the, the involved cells or neurons that are involved in motor function, uh, it's thought that there's something called synaptic strengthening that takes place at each node or transition point in a circuit. So that's certainly an aspect that's important, but it can take multiple forms. Uh, it can take place within existing circuits, that is a biochemical type of plasticity that involves upregulating neurotransmitter receptors and other things, and without getting into too much detail, that's one form of it. Another form may actually involve changes in the physical structure of the way neurons are connected with each other. Now, that would have been a heretical statement 30 years ago. We didn't think that the brain changed physically in the ways we know that it does today. And so when we put these phenomena together, uh, it likely explains the improvement that we see with practice and repetition. Well, definitely fascinating stuff for something that may seem simple on the outside. So William, thanks so much for telling us more about it. Happy to be with you. Dr. William Cullinan is a professor and the Dean of the College of Health Sciences at Marquette University. We spoke last year. It's the Halloween season, so Bubbler Talk is looking into a story of a haunting. That was when they told me, you know, oh, hey, there's <laughs> there's a legend of a ghost here. Joe, you know, Joe haunts the radio. And I'm like, really? What, what else can you tell me about that? Say more. Yeah. <laughs> but first, we'll learn about the traditions during the Mid-Autumn or Moon Festival. That's next on Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. The Mid-Autumn Festival, also known as the Moon Festival, is a traditional Chinese celebration honoring the harvest and the legend of the moon goddess. The Wisconsin Chinese Chamber of Commerce is celebrating the festival this year by combining it with other traditional harvest festivals from around the world, as well as Halloween. The Asian Moon Festival and Halloween Extravaganza will be held this Sunday at the Italian Community Center of Milwaukee. Chamber President Chris Gann joins Lake Effect's Joy Powers to explore the origins of this festival. There are a lot of different names uh, for this festival, which uh, is maybe unsurprising given the uh, diversity of China. But whatever you call it, it's an incredibly popular annual festival. Tell us a bit about what the Moon Festival specifically is. Well, if it's under the traditional Chinese culture, so it's more like a moon festival where there was a long time ago, I will tell you the story, <laughs> and there was a king, okay? And during that period of time, there was a lady who eat the internal pill because he doesn't want the king to have it because it was an evil king. So eventually, 
after taking the internal life pill, he's able to fly straight to the moon, to the moon. And in the moon, he meet the rabbit. So he, her name is called Chang'e. So that was the Asian moon original story it was. So for our event, we make it a little bit different because we do want to uh, celebrate the traditional Chinese culture. However, I gave a call to the Polynesians, the Hawaiians. The Hawaiians have their Rose Pig Festival. And I call up the Latinos, the Mexican. They got a Mexican fiesta. So the Koreans and the Japanese have their own harvest festival during this period of time. So instead of a Chinese moon festival, we combine it, we call it Asian Moon Festival. As you say, this is part of a larger tradition, I think, both inside of Asia and, of course, around the world. It is uh, sometimes called, in China, the Mid-Autumn Festival. They have similar festivals in uh, Japan, in Korea, in a variety of Asian countries. What do these festivals have in common? What are they celebrating together? They're celebrating about unity. And this time we are celebrating, there's a word called other Dr. Sun, that was the father of China, that is before communism. So we believe during the time, we believe under the heaven, everyone is a friend. So we're going to have this festival, we're going to bring everyone together. In the morning, from 10 o'clock to 1.30, we have the business seminars. So we have various chamber of commerce coming over here. And we have banks. If you are small businesses, you want to get loan, you want to get connections, that is where it is. So it's a business networking for the Wisconsin community. So we want to show to the world about the unity of the state of Wisconsin. How do we show it? It's by bringing the business group people together and have all different culture performances. The culture performances, of course, we have the Chinese lion dance, we have the Shaolin Kung Fu, and we have the drums, we have the Japanese drums, and we have the Korean Taekwondo, and we have the Hawaiian dance, we have the Mexican dances, and we have the Hmong dance, the Laos dance, and we bring the unity of each different culture. And we also do have, of course, we also have the U.S. flag ceremony where it will be performed by the military. Oh, one of the dances, so including Afro-American dance over there. So we unite everybody, and we will have finger food, and we have photo booth down there. And you can enjoy the Halloween. People give out candies. So the dress code is either his business or your Halloween. All right. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect. Thank you. Chris Gann is the president of the Wisconsin Chinese Chamber of Commerce, which is holding an Asian moon festival and Halloween extravaganza this Sunday at the Italian Community Center of Milwaukee. Gan spoke with Lake Effects Joy Powers. Bubble Talk, quenching Milwaukee's thirst for knowledge. I'm WUWM's Lena Tran. For more than a century, people have been flocking to this corner bar in West Allis, over by National and 60th. It's been owned by different people, called different names. Crawls Hall, Coca Pelli's, Shipwrecked. Today, it's Layman Brewing, this pub that brews beer on site. They opened in 2020, and since then, Kieran Easter has been a Wednesday night regular. I'm not really a barfly, but I became one for, for this bar. He likes the community there, the food and drink, 
and long conversations. So he talks to old timers and the bartender, and he started to hear whispers about a ghost. What's the story with the haunted radio in the back of Women Brewing? It's Friday the 13th when I visit the pub. It's wet and stormy, gray and miserable. The kind of day you hope for if you're looking for a ghost. Kyle Ida runs the place with his wife, Sarah. He's going to show me the so-called haunted radio and invites a few regulars at the bar to join us. Kyle walks us to a dark corner of the storage room. I got out of my house because it's Friday the 13th because it's haunted. I didn't know I was coming into another haunted. Ta-da! Haunted radio. This is an old Sears Zenith model. The radio's high on a shelf. It hasn't been moved for decades. It's dark wood, has three dials. It's about the size of a boombox, and it's clearly very old. When Kyle and Sarah bought the place, they heard from waitresses who worked here before and shared their ghost encounters. The old employees were like, well, there's cold drafts in the building and the lights flicker. And I'm like, eh, it's a really old building. It's built in the 1890s. And they would say, well, what about the radio? They're like the radio is always on. Don't you think you just forgot to turn the radio off? And she's like, no, the radio's got tubes in it. It won't work. And I'm like, what do you mean tubes? Vacuum tubes. Those things that look like light bulbs and were used in electronics before transistors mostly replaced them in the 50s. When they would come in in the morning, it would always be playing one song. It was the slow dance of the old owner, Joe Sarek, and his wife. They always closed out the night with a dance. That made Kyle think of all the stuff they've found clearing out the old building. Bottles of peach brandy from the 40s, dusty jars of bar dice. We generally attribute it to Joe, and we leave it alone until we feel it's right to move it or clean it and put it on display. A lot of what Kyle knows about Joe comes from his good friend, Laura. She's a history nerd, the kind of person who comes up with ghost tours for friends so she can do more research. I hear ghost stories and I'm like, I want to know about that. I want to know where this actually came from. A couple years ago, Laura was digging around for her next subject. She wanted to bring people to Layman Brewing, so she checked with Kyle and Sarah, asked whether they knew any ghosts. And that was when they told me, you know, oh, hey, there's, there's a legend of a ghost here, Joe. And, you know, Joe haunts the radio. And I'm like, really? What else can you tell me about that? Say more. Yeah. So they provided me. The couple handed Laura all the documents they had, property records, business permits, appraisals, and a story began to emerge. A story that's even bigger than a haunted radio. Joe is Joe Sarek, who was born in Yugoslavia in 1895. Married his wife Barbara, had two sons, John and Paul. And on the 1940 census, he's listed as a tavern proprietor who worked 80 hours a week. In 1962, Joe bought the business from his boss. And then he passed it on to his son, John, in 1971, who passed it on to his sons, Richard and Robert, in 1981-82. And they kept it going. So the, the building was in the family, three generations, for about 33 years. The family was active in the Croatian Fraternal Union. 
That's the oldest, biggest Croatian organization in North America. West Dallas and Milwaukee had one of the most active Croatian communities at that time. The tavern was a meeting space for two local chapters. Eighty years ago, Lara learned, West Dallas Croatians gathered here to write an important letter. In July of 1941, before the bombing of Pearl Harbor, wrote a letter to Congress urging them to support all nations involved in the fight against Hitler fascism. That was not necessarily a popular opinion at the time. There were other letters recorded in the same congressional record from other organizations urging Congress to do the exact opposite. But Laura looks around at the century-old walls of Lehman Brewing, haunted by the people who left this place before she did. You know, other people's stories are still going on, and we're the sequel. It's very grounding to know what happened here. Who else experienced this same place? You, you, you look at wear patterns on the floor where, you know, other feet have tread over and over for years and years, and you kind of get a sense of who those people were. Back at the bar, I meet a little girl who's there with her dad. What do you think about ghosts? Kind of scary. But it seems like this ghost is a romantic ghost. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> he just wants people to have a good time. At the bar, people are doing just that. There's a live stream of kittens playing on the TV, Apple pie and burgers roll out of the kitchen. I meet Gus Haggerty. He lives a few blocks away. He's here to celebrate his late father. It's his birthday. What keeps you coming back to this spot? Kyle and Sarah. They're good people. I mean, neighborhood bar. Can't ask for anything more. You know? Everybody knows your name like cheers. <laughs> Gus is what Kyle calls an old timer. He's glimpsed the bar's past lives a lineage of bars that now Kyle is proud to be a part of. Whether real or not, Joe's, Joe's legacy and showing respect to legacy. You know, I, I think he is a good ghost because <coughs> this is what he, him and his wife did to survive. And this is what my wife and I are doing to survive. We gotta show respect. Kyle hunts for a clean corner of his shirt to wipe his eyes on. He says if he's lucky, he'll get to haunt the bar in his afterlife, a bar that's survived this long and just keeps on going. Personally, I don't believe in ghosts, but I do believe in legacies. Lena Tran, 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Support for Bubble Talk comes from Perlamo's Pizza and UW Credit Union. What have you always wanted to know about the Milwaukee area? Visit wuwm.com slash bubblertalk to submit your question. Bubbler Talk is a regular series on WUWM. You can hear it every Thursday on Lake Effect and Fridays during Morning Edition and All Things Considered. If you have a question you'd like us to explore for Bubbler Talk or to check out past episodes, head on over to wuwm.com. You can look for Lena's story at wuwm.com tomorrow morning. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Joy Powers, Eileen Heikinen-Weiss, Sam Woods, and Excret Nunez join me in producing Lake Effect each week with help from Robert Larry. Becky Mortensen is our executive producer. We also heard from Mayan Silver, Susan Bentz, and Lena Tran from the WUWM News Team this week. Jason Revy is our studio engineer. Michelle Maternowski is our digital manager. Valeria Navarro-Villegas is our digital editor. Trapper Chef wrote our theme music. Thank you so much for joining us today, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.